I mean, I was once grabbed in the dark by, um, I had a gloved hand on, I, I had a glove on my hand and she, she just sort of squeezed it and this was a female Varose eagle. And I was bending down to put her in a weathering and the movement of going down, she just gripped me and I was stuck. I was, and I think I was stuck there for probably 20 minutes until she eventually just released her grip. I couldn't move backwards, forwards. Every time I even flinched a little bit, she'd grab harder and just rip. They ratchet in and in and in and in. Um, but that was more of a squeeze than, there was no talons entered me, thank God, you know. Um, but, well, you know, it's, it, it, you deal with eagles, it comes with them. Most of my friends that fly eagles have all been grabbed at, at some point. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast. And I hope you all have had a great holiday week and really appreciate you coming back to join us for what is now our 15th installment in this series featuring falconers from the UK. And I have to give a quick shout out to the two falconers who helped make this series possible, being Simon Tires and Neil Davies. Simon is the author of The Specialist Falcon as well. And if you haven't added this book to your falconry library, I highly recommend you do so. There's lots of great information in this book about flying long wings, particularly using modern training techniques like droning and things like that. So if you also want a signed copy, you can get one from the website as well. So if you haven't yet, just head to thespecialistfalcon.com and pick up your copy today. Also, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out or read a copy of Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine yet, that's definitely worth checking out too. There's always lots of great new articles, pictures, advertisements for new falconry gear, and lots of information that's packed into every issue that comes out every couple months or so. Neil does a great job putting it together. If you haven't checked it out yet, head to PursuitFalconry.co.uk and subscribe today. Well, it's hard to believe we're down to our last couple of episodes in this UK series, and this is another special opportunity that I was very thankful to Simon for coordinating and making happen. This is one of those opportunities that doesn't come around very often, and I was very happy to be able to make the trip up to the Falcon Muse breeding facilities and have a conversation with Peter Gill, who's one of the owners, and he was also nice enough to take me around and give me a tour of all of their facilities, and man, I was absolutely stunned in how huge this place was. I feel comfortable in saying they're probably one of the bigger breeding facilities in the world but just to think that they actually downscaled from what they used to be it's mind-boggling you know they still got such a huge operation but I had a great time talking to Peter about some of his experiences in breeding and what got him interested in falconry and so on and so forth so I really hope that you all enjoy this episode so with that I give you all Peter Gill from Falcon Muse here we go. It's definitely very, very overwhelming just seeing everything that you've got into this operation. I mean, what year was it approximately that you guys started all this? I started breeding when I was 16 uh, in 1978. 
Um, we've been here about 25 years and Richard's been partner with me for 22, 23 years. And like all projects, it just grows and grows and grows. Um, although in the last couple of seasons, we have kept roughly at the same sort of number of chambers, particularly. Cool. Yeah, it's, um, like I said, it's astounding. I've seen a few smaller operations. I've not seen anything near this big yet. I, I did not realize that this was going to be this large. So yeah. it's very... I've, I've, I be, we certainly breed more falcons than anyone else in the UK. Um, there are some big operations, um, mainly Arab-funded, which is totally different to us. We're not Arab-funded. We sell to Arabs, but they have no interest within our company. Um, <clears throat> and we, we, I think we keep... 330, 340 falcons, adults or sub-adults. And then this year we've bred 460 falcons. Jeez. And you said at one point in time you used to breed lots of other different species yeah. too as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, over the years we've bred a wide range of birds, um, quite a lot of eagles, um, both naturally and with artificial insemination. And... Then we've bred lots of goshawks, all the usual Harris hawks, red-tailed hawks, ferruginous hawks, uh, black sparrow hawks, um, aplomado falcons, merlins, red-headed merlins. Um, but now we've down to just three species, and that's jerk falcon, barbary stroke red napes, and peregrine falcons, and hybrids of. And that's it. That's we've we just specialized just in them three species now. That's that's nuts. I mean, you mentioned earlier whenever you were showing me around some of the the different rooms, like whenever you're showing me, especially like the the incubator rooms and and um, you know just some of the different. Well, one of seems like a hundred different rooms that yeah. you have here. That it's it seems to be a little bit easier for you all now to to kind of manage a little bit oh, and stuff. But yeah. I mean, when you, particularly in the rearing room, when you're rearing such a wide variety of species, um, they all have their own little quirks, goshawks throw food, uh, things like crowned eagles are very slow. It, I could probably feed 10 falcons in the time to feed one crowned eagle. Um, but now with being purely falcons, it's very quick, very manageable. Everyone knows what to expect. Um, and it's like anything, if you have one poorly or sick bird that can take the same length of time as feeding 10 good birds by the time you're giving it antibiotics, fluids for force feeding if necessary. Um, but all in all, um, we don't get too many, uh, so now life has become easier. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, yeah, yeah I, I can imagine that each one of those different species that you used to deal with, like you were kind of describing, poses its own set of challenges. And when you've got to constantly work around a lot of those different different things, I mean, how, how many different sets of hands do you do you have on hand to, to help you out? Well, there's three of us do the breeding, me, Richard, and Lee. Um, we all do his own specific areas. And uh, as an example, Richard does the incubation. 
I do the the hand rearing for up to eight days or longer if it's going to be an imprinted bird. I do all the forced inseminations. Then we all do voluntary inseminations within his own barns. So everybody knows what they do. Uh, unfortunately, this time of year, I get all the paperwork, particularly <laughs> the CITES, et cetera, et cetera, and dealing with the customers, which really we find the hardest work of all the year. The rest of the year is quite enjoyable, but when you get to dealing with customers and who all expect different things from you, um, all want everything doing now, today, um, it can be quite demanding. But, but we've 20-odd years of experience of dealing with these customers, particularly from the Middle East, so we know what to expect and we know how to get around little problems. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that you, you know, each passing year it becomes just a little bit more of a, of a finely oiled machine, so to speak. Yeah, without doubt, without doubt. Um, and each year can throw different little problems, particularly from medical sides, things you've never come across before. Although I think by now we've seen the vast majority of problems. We have a good veterinary backup system, um most of the veterinary stuff is done in-house from only thing we haven't got is an x-ray machine really we, but we have got one within two miles from here if we ever needed one so um yeah we've got good vets that help us yeah i i, I was really impressed by kind of like the I don't know, it, you could almost, it's kind of assembly line-esque of just the different stations that you have of, of how you efficiently get these birds from chamber to, to ready to well, go. And it was funny because this year we had um, an Arab came, come and stop with us for two days and he'd been to a few breeding projects around the world um, but never been here before. And after two days, I said to him, well, what do you think to the breeding project then? And he pulled a face and he said, it isn't a breeding project, it's a falcon factory. <laughs> and really, that sort of struck home then from, yeah, I suppose it is. That's, that's as near as you can get to a falcon factory. Yeah, it, it has its elements, yeah. you know, for sure. That Yeah, I mean, I, I was just kind of expecting, like when you were taking me through a few of the different halls of the chambers and stuff, yeah. like I... I remember coming like the, the first one you took me to, we came to like where it tees off on one hallway and I'm like, okay, cool. This is, this is really nice and big and stuff kind of on to the next. And you're like, okay, let's go down further. And I was like, there's another hall. Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's like another set. And then like we got down to the end of that and then there was another tee off where there was another. Yeah. So I'm, I was just like, where does this end? We have, <laughs> we have about 240 chambers, I think at the moment in total. Um, and if if you look at the chambers, many of them are the same. Um, they have exactly the same set out inside the chambers. And this is so we can move birds from one place to another and it's not strange to them. Um, and we don't plan to really build any more. Um, we think we've reached our peak. Um, and it's just about manageable now. But... Um, it's only it's only any good breeding birds if there is a market and a use for them. And some of the species which we have stopped breeding was due to the market didn't demand the use for them anymore. 
One of the big markets that we've always had is um, Japan. And really, anything we could breed, Japan would take. Um, 50, 60, 70 Harris Hawks a year, 50 Goss Hawks a year. This was achieved for many years. Um, and then us, Harris Hawks started breeding in Japan. And so the market stopped. So we, we didn't have an easy outgoing market. So we stopped breeding Harris Hawks. Um, and if more people would just breed for what is required rather than just what they can breed, then the market would be a lot, a lot better. Yeah. I can understand where you, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but one of, one, one of the things is we were one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to stick his hands up and say, we are commercial breeders. Many clubs, British Falconers club at the time did not like this. They did not. They didn't like the commercial element, which I couldn't, I can't understand because everywhere else you, you had the falconry equipment makers selling, uh, dog breeders seemed to be all right. Everything seemed to be all right except for the actual falcon breeder. Um, I think times have changed and people's attitudes have changed. Um, but you're right in what you're saying. To breed something just because you can is not a good enough reason. There has to be a market. And when I say market, I don't mean necessarily financial, but an, an element of where people want these birds. I mean, we're now starting to see quite a large problem with male peregrine falcons in that everybody wanted the females that were imprinting them for geo production, geo hybrid production. Um, and with females, you get a massive ex excess of males. And now you're seeing people give them away. Now people will say that, well, that's all right. But you fetch a whole new element of people in when something's given to you free of charge. I'm not saying everyone's wrong, but you don't know the hands that they go into. And so everything else has sort of worked itself out. I mean, now there's nowhere near as many goshawk breeders. And this has happened within two to three seasons. There's not as many Harris Hawk breeders. There's not as many red tail breeders. And the market is is now returning to there's probably just about enough being bred for what's wanted rather than an over excess. Peregrines are going to be, it will happen with peregrines, but there's going to be a big excess of tiercels for the foreseeable future. Which is a shame because I don't think there's any better bird for flying than a tiercel peregrine. So, <laughs> you know, it's. Um, Jer hybrid production, we're already seeing. Jer sakers, not many people want them. As nice as they are and as hardy as they are and as suitable for the Arab market as they are, the Arabs have decided they don't want them. And one of the best pieces of, uh, of help and information I was given was probably. 18, 20 years ago, was Sheikh Buti Al Maktoun said, what you need to do is to come to my Majulus, the visiting room, sit there, be quiet, spend quite a few weeks and listen to people what they want. Only breed what people want. Don't breed what you think they want. Find out what they actually want. And 
that's worked for us pretty well, to be honest. Yeah, I can understand. I mean, the the natural laws of of the market, you know, supply and demand. I mean, I can. I mean, it has to apply to this as yeah. as well as it does anything else. Anything else? Yeah. Anything else? It's yeah. and and that's what we're seeing. I mean, now, whoever thought that we'd see sort of geofalcons in the Middle East at almost giveaway prices? If they're not the exact right color, they're exact right size. You know, you can pick a geofalcon up for female geofalcon up for two to three thousand pound in the Middle East. Whoever thought that that would ever happen? You know, and that's because breeders have become so good at breeding them, and the market would only stand so much. Um, so, yeah, every every market will determine itself. Sure. Yeah, and then you've also got all the natural kind of pitfalls that happen in in any kind of market like that where you know you have an order it falls through this that and the other and I'm daily sure, yeah <laughs> daily daily yeah. and and if i have to be honest the worst is the british falconers mm-hmm. for that um we have purposely over the years tried to steer away from the british market um We've always got friends like Simon who <laughs> take the odd falcon. And we know when they ring us up and say, yeah, I want that. That's what they get, they'll get and they'll follow the order through. But um, I suppose it's the same in every country. Ta- people time waste and it's always been easier for us when we have it like a Japanese client that says, I'll take 150 birds across the board and he'll set out 10 red, red tails, six of these, 20 of them. And once they say they'll take them, they take them. There's no, as long as the bird, as long as we keep producing good birds and they're happy with the birds, we've had 18 years of good relations with the same two or three Japanese customers. Unfortunately, this has changed. Um, bird flu has, is now indicated that Unless the UK are clear of bird flu for a minimum of six months, then Japan will not allow us to export. Well, with bird flu now, it looks like it's virtually going to be endemic in the UK. So unless the Japanese authorities change their minds and allow us to test birds before we ship them, the Japanese market has stopped. Hmm. And, I mean, there are governments like that kind of taking into account the fact that just normal migratory birds that come through well, and stuff too, or I well, mean, like- in, in Japan, Japan have a, a big problem with wild avian influenza. Mm-hmm. Um, now it depends on how the country looks at things. For instance, the middle East, um, Saudi Arabia, you have to test before you send birds there. Um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, you send the birds and they test once they land there. So they've all come up with little ideas of how, how to do things. Um, but Japan are very stringent. And let's face it, I mean, the market of sending birds of prey to Japan is so tiny that it doesn't even get mentioned, basically. It's just, no, that's it. That's the rules and that's how we go. Even the poultry market has stopped, but... Apparently, it wasn't that big anyway. So unless it's a large market, people don't sit up and listen. I understand. Yeah, it's I, I can imagine just all the different 
all, all the different hurdles you got to jump through dealing with with all these different you know just just the paperwork and yeah i mean you just never know what comes up with people either i had to i had to cancel a deposit on a bird i actually had a bird fully paid for a couple years a year or two ago and had to had to cancel because my septic system decided that i didn't need a bird i needed a right <laughs> you know and and you just you just never you never know what what pops up no you don't you don't know um and it's hard to plan forward. We've always now gone for one or two large customers that we know will take lots of falcons. Um, generally, in the Middle East, we have one customer who works as this year as an agent for us. We've, I don't think anyone in the Middle East works with the same person for more than three seasons. They tend to swap and change, no matter who you are. And I've talked to breeders all over the world, and they say, oh, yeah, we had a good relationship for three seasons, and then he went X, Y, Z to somebody else. And um, we found that all the time. Um, the actual agent we're using now, we had, did use for five or six years. Um, then we had four or five years off, um, and now we're back with him. Um, but we do it different. In the past, we've always arranged a price and we send the birds out there and that's the price we get. Regardless of what he sells it for, that's the price we get. Now, because you're talking up to several million pounds worth of birds, they can't have really put the neck on the line to everything. So the deal we have now is, okay, we'll send them you all out. They all belong to us. You sell them, you take your percentage and agreed percentage and this takes a lot of lot of trust and apps and but it's working. It's working okay so far. Everybody seems happy. Um but what the future holds I don't know. But things in the Middle East have certainly changed. Everybody knows that. Um certain birds are really wanted. Now we have all the racing, they want race line winners, etc., etc. So now we have to keep lots of pedigrees and lots of various spreadsheets of who did what, what did when and and who's the siblings and who's this which has added a lot more work and we get questions daily, sometimes multiple questions daily on different ring numbers from the past. Have we got any siblings this year? And you say yes, and then they say, well, what colour are they? Or when are, what shipment are they being sent in? What sexes are they? Sometimes you can't answer it because you haven't got all the information in front of you. Um, but we get by, we get by. Um, and you just have to be as truthful and honest as possible. Yeah, well, I mean, how are you keeping track of all this stuff? Just traditional pen and paper, books, or you have everything no, in Excel uh, spreadsheets? Excel and, spreadsheets. Yeah. Um, I probably run about 50, 60 different Excel spreadsheets at the moment for different things. Uh. Um, and the, one, the, the thing that you have to do when you get large is if you're going to keep records, they have to be strict records. It's no good keeping half-hearted records because you, it just confuses you in the end. So everything is from the egg being laid, that gets a number. When it hatches, it carries on that number. We fill out two sheets at the time of hatching. One stops in as records. 
one then follows the bird wherever it goes around the facility so to whichever parent to whichever hack pen etc um and then another another spreadsheet is following whether the CITES has been applied for, whose it's been applied for, where it's going. Sometimes we have to do multiple CITES for the same bird. Um, for instance, we're waiting to see if we're sending some birds to Saudi Arabia and to the auction. And we're now down to within 14, 15 days and there's still problems with health certificates and agreements between governments. I personally don't think it's going to happen. But knowing that this could have been a problem at the beginning of the season i applied for the same birds to go to uh dubai as well so simply i'll just swap them straight over to dubai i won't be waiting for paperwork most paperwork takes three to four weeks um we could decide today no right next week we'll send them to dubai and everything will go ahead um but it means then having to do multiple times each bird and different societies and different health certificates um but we seem to always get through by the end nice yeah i mean the, the one thing i was so surprised about whenever you initially showed the first kind of hack pins or whatever is i i was surprised number one by the amount of birds that are that are in there together and you don't have you know really any issues for the most yeah. part and yeah i was surprised kind of like I mentioned a little bit earlier, how efficient the the process was, you know, getting yeah. these birds ready. So would you mind kind of just running through that again? I think that would fascinate a lot of people to kind of hear how that, that goes from, from you okay. know, beginning to end. Well, we'll go for a typical geoparagrine. Okay. Um, when it hatches, sheets are filled out. We can tell the color of the bird at the time of hatching, whether it's a black peregrine or a white peregrine or a gray peregrine, You can't tell how black, how white, but you can tell the fundamentals. So all this is then put on a spreadsheet. It moves to the brooder room within an hour of hatching, unless it hatches in the night, then it's first thing in the morning. In the brooder room, uh, it's coloured up. So each bird will have its own colour, whether it's a blue head, black back, and so it's recognisable right through to the time of a band putting on or a ring putting on. Um, it's reared in there for approximately seven, eight days. And then it's taken out to either pairs of peregrines or imprint female peregrines. Where it will stay until it's ready for the hack pen, which means it's left the nest ledge, it's got off the floor, it's flying from up to the highest perches in in whichever chamber it's in. They then move to the hack pen and we can move, we have three hack pens and we'll have anywhere from 50 to 80 falcons in each hack pen at the highest point. Um, we tend to put females in one hack pen, males in another. Um, not that we've had any trouble when we've mixed them together. It's just better for us and the hack pens are different sizes. So obviously the bigger the hack pen, the bigger females go in. Um, they stay in the hack pen anywhere minimum of two weeks, preferably three, but sometimes up to five or six weeks, depending on the time of the year and when the chick hatches. Um, they're then caught out of the hack pen, which is usually a three or four day job because we catch in the smaller antechambers from the hack pen with food some come in usually you catch about 50 percent in the first day 
and then it, it, it goes down and down and down and some that we call pirates will never come in that room. They'll just sit outside, wait for a bird to come out with food and rob it, basically. <laughs> um, we usually get down to five or six and then we just go in and net them five or six. Um, they then put into big indoor chambers um, where they're going to stop for about seven to 12 days, roughly, before the ship. So they put into individual shipments. Um, everything's checked, band numbers, etc. as they go in. Uh, everything's checked for coccidia before it, as it goes into the hack pen. And then as it comes out of the hack pen, we use a different treatment for called Worm Out Plus, which does coccidia and worms. Um, most vets would stand there and say, well, you should really test them before you do we don't have the time or we just have to do M block. And when we had the more experienced vets here, they said, yeah, well, you're doing exactly right. You can't do any difference. So they put into the individual uh, pens on the day of shipping. We go in at six o'clock in the morning. The vet comes at six o'clock in the morning, catch them seven at a time, um, fetch them out, equipment on, vet looks at them. Ticks them off a list. They then sit on perches hooded for five or six hours. Um, they then, equipment's taken off them, except for the hood. Uh, guards are put on the wings and the tail. Some people don't guard these days. Some people soak them down. It's individual. Some argue for one point, some argue for the other. But in our case, we guard um into the boxes and then they're straight off to the airport this year we're using birmingham airport um in the past we've used manchester uh, and the last couple of years we've used heathrow um, mainly because emirates stopped flying out of birmingham through the pandemic but they've started back up now um and by the following morning they sat in dubai um and our dealer has a nice big place, which is all air conditioned, and he has a hack, indoor hack pen if required. Um, but most birds are put straight up onto perches, rested for three to four days, get gut feeding, and then people can go and see and pick their own falcons. Many of which have already been pre-sold because they've asked for ring numbers and they want siblings from birds they've had in the past. Um, and that's really the whole, whole, uh, circle. Um, and then it's back to cleaning out, which takes three and a bit months from one end to the other, repairing up if necessary and a few changes here and there, repairs, new cameras, etc. And then the whole series starts again. <laughs> Jeez. That is a lot of moving parts. A lot of, a moving, lot of parts. moving parts. Um, and it's like anything, if, if, our staff have all been with us now for, I think one's been with us four years, one's been with us 10 and one's been with us 18. And so they know, they know the job. Um, they're good, good lads. They don't have days off. Um, they all turn up on time and they go home on time. So everything's pretty smooth. Well, you guys must, must not be too bad to work for then. <laughs> no, I don't I, I don't, I don't think we are. I mean, there's times in midwinter when you're cleaning Avers out and it's cold and it's snowing and <laughs> people are a bit fed up. But um, but there's good times as well, so. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, and one of the other kind of clever things going back to, you know, you mentioned the, the tail and the wing guards. I thought it was kind of clever how you said you'd use former, uh, x-ray yeah you know, film, x-ray film. Yeah. yeah yeah um as i said earlier x-ray films now getting harder and harder to get because everyone's gone digital mm-hmm. uh, we were lucky that our vet had probably five or six years full for us when uh, she took over the new veterinary practice um and it, we just we have used various acrylics in the past when we when we couldn't get it but without doubt x-ray film seems to fit the bill the best nice well in the midst of all of this kind of organized chaos that you've got going on on a day-to-day basis keeping track of all this stuff i mean do you have much time for for your own falconry or anything none. anymore none used to <laughs> none now none by the time <laughs> by the time i mean uh, usually our last shipment of birds goes first week of september then we all have a holiday each. Um, so we're then into October. Cleaning's already started then where whoever's not on holiday. Um, and usually it's second week in January that we've finished cleaning out and that's working six days a week on it. Um, then we've got the indoor jobs where we every year we clean the obviously the incubator room, brooder room, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of painting to do. Um, get a quick holiday, and I usually go to Dubai then in, in end of February, and then straight back and into it. I mean, at one time when we was doing Golden Eagles, we AI, we were getting semen sort of second, third week of uh, February, and so the season had really officially started then. Now it's a little bit later. We're, we've probably get Jeff semen. 4th, 5th of March, we start getting it. Hmm. Well, that's got to be a little bit of a bummer, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> it's, it is what it is, and, yeah. that, and that's what life is, you know. Um, and there's worse ways to make a living. Oh, for sure, for sure. I I totally understand that. But, well, I mean, if, if you don't mind, I mean, at least whenever you were able to, to kind of practice and fly birds on a little bit more regular basis when, when you were younger, I mean, what when did you start getting into it all? Um, well, I was into birds right from school days, 14, 15. Um, bred my first birds when I was 16, which were common buzzards. The second birds I bred when I was 17, which was goshawks, which was really lucky looking back at it now just put two goshawks in an aviary and they bred um and they stayed together all year round and i kept them for five or six years and they never fought which is a big problem with goshawks um just pure luck peregrines and merlins sort of in the early 80s sort of 83 84 i think merlins were first and peregrines second and then i did lanners and luggers and sakers and prairie falcons and uh Obtained my first year falcons in 89 from Jean Lejean. Uh, Jean Lejean's been one of the most successful breeders of jerseys, particularly in Canada. And um, that particular year, he'd bred 11. So it showed he, even he was at the beginning of breeding at that time. Um, and now, I think we bred the first years in 94. Real 94, 93, I think. Um, but I find jurors difficult 
when you buying birds in at various ages and pairing them up, sometimes you get a little bit of luck, but you get a lot of females that don't lay. And then we, we sort of followed the route of imprint females and hindsight tells us a lot of imprint females don't lay. Um, so, and the years go by and the years go by, but then as you start breeding, you start keeping some of your own stock back. Then you start to see results. They're bred in the same aviaries. They know the same conditions. They're fed the same food. So they know everything. Nothing's a shock to them. And this year we bred 125 pure Jure falcons. And, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, we could, we've still got lots of pairs which are maturing. Um, but... As I said earlier, the market will only sustain so much. So we've got now start to be a bit more selective on what we breed. Gotcha. So from the from the very beginning, when you kind of found out about falconry and and you know just the the different you know types of hunting you can do and all that. I mean, have you pretty much still mostly been more occupied with the breeding side than the actual side of flying birds or? Yeah, but I, I have flown a lot of birds. Mm -hmm. um, we used to rent a, a thousand acre estate and we put sort of five, six, 700 birds down a year for, for hunting. And we, um, and quite a wide variety long wings, um, uh, particularly Jeff Peregrine, um, goshawks, a lot of goshawks, uh, in the early days, some Harris Hawks, but and I used to go for several seasons. I went to Cornwall and flew Merlin at Skylark. Um, so we've done a wide variety. Mm -hmm. I've never flown an eagle, um, kept many eagles, bred many eagles, never quite had the right land to do it or the time to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I like game hawking and I like goshawks, basically. I'm a big fan of goshawks. Yeah, big fan yeah. of goshawks. You get along with some of my buddies back home then. Yeah. Like I said yeah, they're yeah. they're they're big fans as well. But yeah. not my thing personally, at least not yet anyway. But uh but I, I understand the appeal. No, I mean yeah. um but yeah, no, as far as is um you know, just like I said, kind of going back a little bit to the introduction. I mean, you mentioned kind of how you started and which bird you bred first and stuff. But what was there a particular event or a particular thing that you saw initially that that made you get interested or you know got got the uh, I don't know just the will can to vaguely, can vaguely remember. Probably I was thirteen or fourteen, thirteen, going to a game fair and seeing birds flown. Okay, obviously it's just display birds, but that sort of uh, kindled the, the big interest. Uh, then at school, a few people had kestrels, um, ended up with a kestrel and moved from there. I don't think from the age of 14, I don't think any time, in fact, I know no time in my life I've not had a bird of, of a bird of prey. But I've also tried to breed other things. I had quite a big parrot collection, which I looked after for my brother, but they were they were kept here. Lots of macaws, hyacinth macaws and various things. Um, British finches. I always, as a young lad, I always kept a lot of British finches and showed British finches. So it's always been avian pushed, but birds of prey have always been the main, the main thing. Gotcha. Well, I mean, is there any particular... I don't know, event or story that sticks out in your mind from like whenever you did most of your game hawking that 
that sticks out? Or do you have a particular memory of, of any particular bird that you had or a particular hunt or anything that you'll always kind of remember or, um, a funny incidence when I was made redundant, which actually pushed me into birds of prey full time was for three, four years. We ran courses. At that time, it was anything to sort of raise a revenue. Um, we were breeding, but we weren't breeding enough to live from. Um, and we had a wide range of people come on these courses. You never knew. They'd book in online or what have you, and then they'd turn up. And we had a, I can remember a vegetarian turned up, which for falconry is not good when you're <laughs> going to take them out hunting. Um, but one of the funny things was a vicar. A vicar turned up and it was a young guy and he had the dog collar on and you sort of think, mm, how's he going to take this sort of thing? And I took him onto the estate and we were sort of trying to introduce him to what falconry was. And we were walking along a, a stream. He was one side of the stream. I was the other side of the stream, Harris Hawk following on. And um, Harris Hawk went, down onto a pheasant as it raised, killed the pheasant, but on his side of the stream, and I couldn't get across. So he's shouting to me, what should I do? What should I do? I says, put your hand on the pheasant. The bird won't leave it, and I'll get round to you. And when I got there, the Harris hawk had gotten straight through the juggler, and there was blood <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> all over him. And I thought, oh, no, oh, what's going to happen here? You know, how's he going to take this? <laughs> And when things calmed down, I said to him, so what do you think? <laughs> and he said, great, when can we get to the next one? <laughs> and it was funny, he actually went on to have a Harris Hawk himself as well. So you never judge a book by its colour, you just never know what's what's going to be there. It's, it's good that he probably experienced that before anything yeah. else, because it's... Um, we always kind of joke amongst ourselves, anybody getting into it or that feels like they're even remotely interested in getting into it. The first thing we say is at some point in time, you will get footed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it could be tomorrow. It could be, you know, years from now, but there will be a point in time. If you deal with birds of prey long enough, you will get footed. Yeah. And, and a lot of a lot of times that can make or break somebody's oh, desire, yeah. but especially with with a red tail or or a, or a bigger species bird, yeah, you you know you, you gotta want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we obviously because we're handling birds all the time, we still get bit, we still get grabbed, um, not as much as what the average person probably would, <laughs> but. Um, it's never bothered me that, but the, the, I had one bird, one bird who was a female golden eagle, imprint, the biggest goldie I've ever seen. She was enormous, and her attitude was just as big. This bird, when you entered the pen for 10 months of the year, nine months of the year, would come straight at you, both feet, and... Um, 
didn't back away. Most eagles back away. When you go into them, they back away. If you put a net over them, they just cower down onto the floor and you just put your hands on. No, this eagle, once you got the net over her, she turned on her back and she just footed blindly through the net. And I have to admit, she is the only bird that I've woken up in the night having hot sweats with. <laughs> and I really thought that one day she was going to have me. Um, and it was interesting that as you came into February, her attitude would just slightly change. The crest wouldn't go up quite as much. And then we, in four or five days, she was standing for voluntary insemination and I could do any, I could pick her up like a chicken and do anything I wanted with her. Um, she used to lay four or five eggs and we'd get four or five fertile eggs from her. Um, absolute dream to work with. She'd sit eggs. We'd then put chicks in with them and she would rear perfectly. And to some degree she would, as you entered the chamber, she'd get up off the chicks, fly away as if you were the male let you have a look at the chicks and she'd have a preen and a feed and then come, as you left the chamber, she'd come back until <laughs> you had to put the bands on the chicks because invariably as you pick the chick up, it would shout out mm -hmm. with some sort of distress and she would come straight in. And from that minute onwards for the rest of the year, she would have you if you weren't in that chamber. <laughs> so we used to have to run in, grab the chicks, take them out, put the bands on, try and go in with a net or something to get the chicks back in the nest, get back out. And then until we had to catch the chicks up, we never entered the chamber again because she was just an accident waiting to happen. But take her out of the equation. And I've, for instance, martial eagles always seemed a much more powerful bird to, to me. That, um, but I didn't have any worries about martial eagles um, we've done various fish eagles and sea eagles who all want to bite you and foot you at every opportunity. Never used to worry about them, but this one particular golden eagle um, always worried me. And fortunately, she she did never get me. She never got me. <laughs> well, we're we're sitting here now and we're having this conversation. And yeah, it's uh, I'm glad for you anyway i've heard a couple of stories about guys that have gotten footed by him before and i can only imagine yeah. i mean i mean i was once grabbed in the dark uh, by um i had a gloved hand on uh, i had a glove on my hand and she she just sort of squeezed it and this was a female varose eagle and i was bending down to put her in a weathering and the movement of going down she just gripped me and i was stuck i was and i think i was stuck there for probably 20 minutes until she eventually just released a grip. I couldn't move backwards, forwards. Every time I even flinched a little bit, she'd grab harder and just rip. Uh. They ratchet in and in and in and in. Um, but that was more of a squeeze than there was no talons entered me. Thank God, you know. Um, but, well, you know, it's, it, it, you deal with eagles, it comes with them. Most of my friends that fly eagles have all been grabbed at, at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I've, there's another guy or two that I know that have been also footed pretty bad by like Eurasian eagle owls, and yep. and uh, yeah, basically just had to lay there until the thing came off. Cause I, <laughs> I personally think there's nothing worse than a red tail grab, a female red tail. I mean, if they grab hold of you, you you've got serious yeah. problems. Well, and and you can't 
I mean, when you pull one toe to try and get it out, yep. the other two are sinking yeah, yeah, in yeah, 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 and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I still have phantom pains to some degree yeah. in the meat of the underneath my thumb where I got footed by one yeah. years ago. Yeah. And it still feels like sometimes yeah. it's, I don't know, it's, I'm sure it's probably psychological more than yeah. anything, but, but yeah, it is, it, it does not feel good. No, yeah. no, it's, uh, but it, it rarely happens here. I, I would think the f- most common injury here is carrying gear falcons and not the feet, it's the bite. When they just turn around, they bite blindly because usually <laughs> you've got a hood on and they bite and twist, you know, and it, it, it hurts at the time and for a day afterwards, but, you know, it's it's not going to kill you <laughs> well and and there's been some friends of mine that have been like oh well if one of those hawks you know bites you that's probably gotta i'm like i would rather get bitten by a bigger hawk than i would a kestrel like american yeah. kestrel because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those things they Definitely. will dig and pull and you will bleed yeah. you know i mean i was just like on the hawks and stuff the talons are ob- the you know the, the obvious thing you don't want to mess with but you know the bites not as much, but little little falcons especially sometimes you'd be surprised how much those things can hurt too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's. Uh, I mean, is there any other um, things that kind of come to mind as far as just interesting things you've encountered? Or I mean, you've been doing this an awful long time. I know there's got to be a ton, but yeah, we, we've encountered a lot of people. I mean, one interesting thing was we um me and richard ran a project in Qatar in doha for they set up a breeding project they asked us to go and go over there and they wanted to do a contract with us and we had numerous meetings over a 10-day period and at every meeting our salary went down um <laughs> Until in the end, they rang up the hotel and said, right, are you coming today? I said, sorry, we can't come. They said, why not? They said, because we'll be paying you if we come today. The salary's gone down that much. (laughs) You know, we're not interested. So jump forward five years. The project had had various people there and still had never bred a single falcon. And we had mutual friends who were friends of the owner. And the owner at the time was the Minister of Defence for Doha. And uh, they said, well, will you just come and have a look? Just tell us where you think we're going wrong. So they paid for us tickets and we went over there and we had a bit of a holiday and and looked around and there was quite obviously things wrong. Didn't help when there was a snake in the corridor for a start (laughs) of, you know, there was chickens uh, in some of the imprint pens. There was uh, a step eagle in another one. Um, and it, it was quite awful, really. And we told them. We told them. We were frank with them and said, you know, this is never going to work under these circumstances. So they said, well, advise us and we'll start all again. We'll do complete new buildings. Now, bear in mind that these buildings, there was nothing really fundamentally wrong with them. And they they all was built on the arc of a 100-metre hack pen that was six storeys high, all breeze block built in. Just everything was oversized and too big. And we said, well, we'll give you some assistance. And they said, well, we'll pay for your families to come for holidays each year. And And at that time in our life, it was a challenge and it was... Uh, 
pre-holidays, really. That's, that's how we looked at it. And within four years, we got them breeding, I think they bred 96 falcons in the fourth year. So everyone was really happy. And we went out one day and they said, oh, the general wants to see you and we'll go to his palace up by the sea, fetch your family. And we went up there and we did fishing and snorkeling and all the rest of the toys. And we sat down for a meal with him and I had a meal. And then he, he said, come and speak to us. Now, you have to bear in mind that this was sort of Gulf War, Second Gulf War sort of time. Qatar had allowed the uh, Americans and armed forces to use their place as the base because Saudi wouldn't. Um, and it was actually the American uh, main airport backed onto where our hackpen was. <laughs> and that's how close... But we never saw anything, you know, it, it was, everything was sort of run as normal. Um, so we sat down and had him, the general said, can I have a word with you? So we said, yes, yeah, sure, no, no problem. And he says, uh, so what do you think to our problem? Now we're thinking breeding centre problem. This is all we've ever spoke about, nothing <laughs> else. And we said, uh, we look at one another and we think, well, we ain't got any problems. Well, we ain't got any problems. <laughs> and he says, no, 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 no. In Iraq, what is the Western perspective? We'd been told a couple of years before with the people that we were around by other people was always stay neutral, don't say anything. Some people you think will be thinking in one direction, but they're not thinking in another, so... We played it very cool and said, oh, we don't have a perspective. We, we, we see it on the news at the time, but we're sure there's more going on than what they reported. And it brought it home in the same conversation we talked then about some falcons. <laughs> and he talked about his favourite bird was the Sake Falcon and particularly from a place in northern China... His father had had them from there for many years and he'd sent trapping expeditions uh, in Mongolia. And he said, but of course, never get one with the spots on the back. So we looked at one another. We said, what do you mean with the spots on the back? You know, where they have the white spots on the back. And we said, well, why? And he says, well, it's common knowledge. Spots slow the birds down. And we sort of sat there and thought, this guy is in charge of all the armed forces. And he thinks that some spots on the plumage slow the bird down. Maybe he knows something we don't know, but we couldn't disagree with him under the circumstances. Well, yeah, you're, you're in his house and yeah. under, under his roof. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those, those, yeah. The bigger the spots, the slower it's going to be. You just yeah. have to agree until you get but out of there. You find, this, you find this in the Middle East a lot where... If their father or their grandfather has said something, and sometimes there will be a scientific background, but sometimes there isn't. But you have to agree. You have to say, oh, yeah, of course you're right. You know, of course, you know. Um, it's like saying that grey peregrines are the fastest because they've won the most races. Well, yeah, because if you look at the proportion of grey-deer peregrines in the races, it's like 80 90%. They're going to win the most races. <laughs> yeah. Um, or 
a very big racing team, probably the largest racing team in the Middle East. I visited them. And they had about 100 Jer Falcons on blocks in one room, which seems a lot, but believe me, it was 100 Jer Falcons from all over the world, different breeders. And my question to them was, well, as, it, as we went round, they said, oh, this one's had aspergillus, this one's had aspergillus, this one we're treating for aspergillus. And, and, so I said to them, when you get the birds here in the, in the Middle East, do you ever just treat them with a small dose of uh, boriconosol for the first week, 10 days? And they said, no. So I said, why? And they said, because a bird treated with voriconosol has never won a race. I says, yeah, but that's because you only treat it when it's got aspergillus. <laughs> what you should really say is a bird with aspergillus has never won the race. It's not the voriconosol that's yeah. stopping it. You could see within two or three minutes that they weren't going to listen to me. Sure. So you just move on to the next thing. You say, well, you know best. You're sure. the right. Oh, you'd be surprised. I mean... Probably actually, no, you probably wouldn't be surprised, but I mean, there's, there's a lot of things like that, that happen even in, in medicine, even yeah, in, yeah. in our medicine, you know, human medicine <laughs> and a lot of just, you know, these weird observational, you know, yeah, things. I've, I've been, I've been lucky in that I've been friends with some really, really good vets, really good vets, both here and in the Middle East. And you have to remember in the Middle East, they see probably 50 times as many, let's say, aspergillus cases as what a vet would in the United Kingdom. Maybe even more than that. Um, and it's interesting how different vets sort of look at things differently. Example. Any breeder will tell you that sends to the Middle East Sooner or later, you'll get the call. Oh, we can't pay for this falcon. We've had it scoped. It's got aspergillus. Now you have, with experience, you have to sit back and say, okay, first, where did you have it scoped? Second, can I see a film of the scoping? They all take films. They all take pictures. Any modern endoscope now has this facility on it. Third, when you saw something that was susceptible, did they take a small piece and look at it under a under the microscope? Many vets don't, but the best vets, i.e. Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital or Antonio de Soma, would never put their head on the line. They'd say, it looks like aspergillus, but they would never say it is aspergillus without doing further tests. And... We certainly know birds which have been within three days of being flown in there will show white lesions, white marks, which tend to come from, well, they tell me air pressure in aeroplanes. After four or five days, they sort of have gone. So you, but if they scope too quickly when they get there, um, a wrong diagnosis can be made. Um, so it's going that extra step. We we now say, okay, we'll accept a bad report, but only from this veterinary surgery or this veterinary surgery, none of the sort of backstreet places. Um, not that I'm saying all the backstreet places are wrong, but if they don't do the proper tests, 
you're talking a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you've just got to be careful. But it, of all the sides, the veterinary side interests me the most. As you can see, we have quite a good veterinary facility here, and that's because the vet, vets come and they'll say, oh, why don't you have a, a blood testing machine for lead? Right, we'll get one of them. Why don't you have an endoscope? Right, we'll get one of them. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, and we have vets come. Uh, Richard Jones comes over. He's been a big help. In the past, we've had vets like Nigel Harcourt-Brown that's been a big, big help. Um yeah, it, it is a side that really interests me. I can see why. I mean, it's it's fascinating, and and um, you know, I've I've had to have a necropsy and things done yeah. on birds in the past, and and yeah, you're you're always curious. What what I mean, if anything else, you're always curious to find out what you know. It's kind of the the deal with some of these things, so you can try and avoid them in the future too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, in breeding in chambers when you've got four or five ices being reared, um, particularly in hot, bad weather, a piece of food can soon go off. You know, you're trying to feed sort of just the right amount so there's nothing hangs around, but a bird will go and stash it in a corner and then feed a chick, and the chick then starts to show problems. Um, so you've always got to be on on the ball. Um Usually we find in that, that section of the rearing, then it'll be a bacterial problem just after leaving the nest. If it's a gerfalcon, it could be uh, aspergillus. So you have to take that into consideration. I've never had a bird with show signs of aspergillus in the nest. Just after leaving, yes. Um, so, but over the years, you change things. An example is we have a ramp in every single pen. We have a ramp so that young gerfalcons, when they leave the nest, they're not spending time running around on the floor, jump, trying to jump and getting stressed up onto things. They have a ramp that they can go straight back up to the nest ledge. And within two to three hours of a bird leaving the nest, they will be back up, up the ramp. If they're not back up the ramp, there's a problem. Either it's left the nest too early, in which time you would just go in and lift it up, or it does have a physical problem because that ramp, it, it saved more gerfalcons' lives just with not getting stressed and aspergillus occurring seven, ten days later. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I, I, we could probably go on all day about some of these little things here and there. I'm, I'm trying to be courteous of your, uh, of your time constraints and yeah. stuff today. So I think a, a good thing to go ahead and, and end on uh, would be the same thing I've kind of been asking a lot of people. And basically it could be from either a, a breeding perspective or just a falconry perspective, but what piece of advice would you have to lead or leave to uh, other generations coming in or new perspective people either trying to get into breeding or falconry in general, or you've doing, been doing this a long time. So breeding uh, is paying aden- attention to the small details. Uh, probably the most famous book ever written was Falcon Propagation by the Peregrine Fund. And even today, I I, I meet lots of breeders which have sort of started breeding 10, 15 years after I have. And they've got some experience. And I'll ask them things which was in Falcon Propagation 
and it's in the small details in falcon propagation and they don't grasp it they haven't grasped what they're trying to do and how to try and do it they know the big things they can do an insemination and, or how to help an egg i mean that's probably the most common thing is phone calls i've got an egg that's doing this should it be doing this um you can't always answer because you're talking down a phone you can't see what's going on mm -hmm. you know so you can only talk through the steps of and try and find the problem or they come to you after the breeding season and say oh i had these eggs stop what do you think well really i ain't got a clue because i don't know what you were doing at the time <laughs> you know and and human beings being what human they never want to admit that they've probably done something wrong whereas really if you just write down everything that occurred temperatures turning if something broke down uh what incubator you had them in how you had them turning etc etc um for instance our breeding facility in uh in Qatar when we were running that everything was done on the internet and um, we had a an Indian guy who was in charge and he still is in charge now but the biggest problems was we got the same questions on eggs every single year. This isn't hatching. Why I've lost this? Why? And you would go through it and you would try and find the answer. But then the next year, the same would come round. And as I say, they wasn't taking care of the small details. They were only looking at the bigger picture. We put it in that machine. It cooks for 31 and a half days. It pips. We put it in that machine and two days later it comes out. Uh, well, what if it pips at 29 days? Oh, we never looked at that, sir. <laughs> you know, the small. And it's all been written down. If anyone ever wants to read about breeding, read Falcon Propagation. It was, I think it was about 1982 it was written. I might be wrong there by a year or so. And right to today, nothing has been written any better than that book. Well, that's a, a great piece of advice. And, I mean, everybody is always interested to hear at least the the starting points of where they should, yeah. you know, get their initial bit of knowledge. And, and you know, Peter, like I said, I really appreciate the time that you've given me today and, and – um, you know, some of the stories and, and yeah, some of that basic knowledge. I mean, that's, that's, like I said, I've, it's, I've really enjoyed gathering a lot of these since I've been over here and, and seeing you all's perspective of how you do things over, over here in the UK. And it's been, it's been really great. So once again, I really appreciate your time. So thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.